0: Welcome everyone to Leading with Empathy and Allyship. I'm your host, Melinda Brianna Epler, the founder and CEO of Change Catalyst, where we build inclusive innovation through training, consulting, and events. So this series goes deep, it gets real, we build empathy for underrepresented and historically marginalized people, and we provide tangible, actionable steps that we can all take to be better allies and advocates for each other. Today, we are discussing strengthening LGBTQIA plus leadership in the workplace, Please welcome a great friend and colleague, Jennifer Brown. Jennifer is the founder and CEO of Jennifer Brown Consulting, (JBC).
1: Welcome. Thanks, Melinda. Thanks for having me.
0: You and I could offer hours about this stuff, and we have, Yes, we have. <laughs> <laughs> and we only have an hour. So we're going to talk specifically today about LGBTQIA leadership. We'll leave a little bit of time maybe to talk about a few other things, but we're going to focus mostly on that. Briefly, can you tell us your story of how you came to be working on diversity and inclusion? What, what brought you there?
1: Well, accidental, as is probably true for a lot of us that end up in this work, and yet looking back, it all strangely makes sense, too. I was a nonprofit activist in my 20s, so working for community justice organizations, loved it, but was also an opera singer on the side. So I'm not sure a lot of people remember that about me, but it brought me to New York to make it, allegedly. Uh, (laughs) And I got a master's degree in operatic vocal performance here in New York City and became equity and did theater. Theater. And sadly, I kept injuring my voice, and so I had to get several rounds of vocal surgery, at which basically deprived me of the ability and the and really the instrument that could perform eight times a week for months at a time. And so I had to reinvent. And I performers um, some go into HR because we're we're people people uh, hopefully. I I kind of followed some mentors advice and found my way to this field that I didn't know had existed, which is leadership development. I ended up um, becoming a corporate trainer, like somebody that delivers training over and over again and in various company settings, usually in organizations, and was in HR for a while, head of training and development, and then went out on my own. And at the moment I was laid off, I said, I think I need to be outside the organization influencing in because I, my point of view was crystallizing about all the things that were broken that I had heard over and over again in the corporate training classroom. And I think I wanted to be a part of fixing that, but fixing it on my own terms and not really working for somebody mm-hmm. in that context. So the company built and I started to build my team, but I'm also so being lgbtq and i've been out since i was 22 i had always done that on the side and been very active in out and equal workplace advocates so some people on this call may know what out and equal is but it's specific to lgbtq plus inclusion in the workplace and i was on one of the first like local boards in new york 15 17 years ago and i was at the table with all these incredible people who were building their company's first lgbtq marketing strategy talent strategy you know, IBM was there. Merrill Lynch was there. Deloitte was there. Um, and these were my friends. And I got to learn what is an E.R.G. What is wait? There's something called the Chief Diversity Officer. I didn't know that. And so I was able to join my leadership development and organizational change background with my identity and and consult from this place, not just of expertise, but. Personal and lived experience, and I think that's when we pivoted the company in that direction. And I had a lot to learn. I mean, I have. um, I'm so humbled by all the people who've been at this DNI stuff for 30 years, some of whom I know. And it's just incredible to see how it's evolved. And I stand on lots of shoulders, and I'm so honored to do this in my own way that hopefully resonates with someone. Because um, this work, as you know, Melinda, takes all of us. The messenger, not just the message, is what matters. In this work, too. So I'm very aware of that and try to do as much as I can with that.
0: A couple of weeks ago on episode five, I spoke with Tiffany Yu about people with disabilities. And one thing that I've always kind of thought about is people with disabilities kind of pull everyone together from the disability community under that one umbrella of people with disabilities. But the LGBTQIA community does not do that. The LGBTQIA <laughs> community adds letters and includes more people as it grows. You know, I still think that there's people that are left out of that alphabet, but the idea here of building that alphabet, growing that alphabet, growing that rainbow is, I, I think, a really powerful thing in the LGBTQ community. Is there specific language that's important? And, and maybe
1: can you talk about language overall for the community? Yeah, for sure. One of the the thing places I always start, and I know maybe for some of you, this is like totally, I already know this because they're part of your community, Melinda, but sexual orientation is different than gender identity. We can think of these as two parallel, but not the same continuum. The movement coalesced in this series of letters, but really the diversity within the diversity, as I often say, is is staggering. I mean, there's so many different identities that are being collapsed into that group that conflate sexual orientation and gender identity, number one, right? So LB, let's see, I get this right, LBQ. Well, LB and G are sexual orientation. Trans, T is a uh, gender identity. Q is an umbrella term that I think has become really popular amongst younger generations and older generations have a very specific reaction to it because it was used as a, um, as a bad word against us, yeah. you know, for years. And so, but I really like Q because it encompasses, to me, everything that's non-normative in terms of both sexual orientation and gender identity and expression. And so a lot of more people feel comfortable because now what we understand about identity is, is uh, that it's not a binary you know, that we are all somewhere on these continua. And that's what make, makes this community so beautiful. But it's not just the community that's on the continua. Honestly, I would argue everyone in the population is probably on somewhere on that continuum and is not in a binary. Even if you identify as heterosexual, cisgender, you know, it's. It, I think it's fascinating, human identity, there's no two of us that are alike. Uh, and so the I, A, intersex is I. There's some incredible, I, I just watched a show on on Vice about intersex athletes, Olymp- Olympians. Um, I thought did a really excellent job of um, educating me for sure about the identity of that community um, and the particular, the fa- the reasons why it needs to be its own letter. And then A refers to asexual, which is um, a recent addition. And plus kind of encompasses the I and the A sometimes. So you'll hear LGBTQ plus as an inclusive term, I have also incorporated pronouns. And so when I introduce myself, my name is Jennifer, my pronouns are she, her, hers. And um, I find that such an interesting moment for people to learn what I mean and then to think about their assumptions and biases about how people identify around us, you know, and and how we don't want to make assumptions that the world is through our lens only. And so I consider that something very important that I do. And I um, usually when I do that on keynote stages of old, you know, pre-pandemic, I would say, I'd say my pronouns are she, her, hers. Does anyone know what I'm talking about? And literally, depending on where I was in the country of the world and and what generation I was speaking to, lots of like confused faces. So there's just a lot of opportunity to kind of back up and bring people forward with language. And Melinda, I think we all kind of sprint really fast ahead because I know we're impatient for change. And I know that this is what we stare at all day. But most of the people we work with that I try to influence, I need to really meet them where they're at and make sure they don't get overwhelmed. Because overwhelmed people feel stressed, they feel shamed, and then they kind of give up. You want to keep people in the dialogue so that they keep learning.
0: Yeah. And I think in terms of the plus, the reason why there's a plus is there are a lot more identities that aren't encompassed there. And then just a couple that come to mind, A is also androgynous and pansexual is another that is in the plus <laughs> there. Um, I know there are others that I'm forgetting, but I just want to acknowledge that as well. I yeah, think um, so that's true. really important to keep opening and keep mm. keep learning and keep adding. It's beautiful. Yeah. My team did some research, and according to the human rights campaign, the HRC, 46% or almost half of LGBTQ workers in the US are closeted. That was a 2019 study. 59% believe it's unprofessional to discuss sexual orientation or gender identity in the workplace. Let's talk about covering and just to very quickly define it. And Jennifer, please add, if you have more here, the covering is essentially actively hiding a piece of your identity. And most people who will cover, they cover in the workplace and they they often cover at home as well. And, and as they go out into the world, so it can be damaging personally, people do it because they fear discrimination, harassment, mistreatment, violence, if they don't cover. And so Jennifer, how do we create safe spaces for people to come out in the workplace and to bring that piece of them to the workplace?
1: Yeah, I think, thank you for that question. I think, um, so let me define covering and then I'll come back to how we can create cultures of belonging where we cover less, which is the goal, right? Ideally, we eradicate that behavior or the the pressure to do so. And it's like you said, it's downplaying a known stigmatized identity. So this is from work done by Kenji Yoshino and Christy Smith. And they wrote a paper with Deloitte called Uncovering Talent. And it's still available online. And I would really recommend reading it. Um, I love teaching about covering because to me, it feels like something I do to myself. It's a decision I make to play small and to kind of conveniently not talk about maybe the elephant in the room, or just not talk about anything at all. I mean, maybe people don't even know it's an elephant in the room. It's just something I straight out never discuss. Um, it's also the modification of our speech patterns and the way we look and the interests that we share or we don't share with our colleagues because we are afraid of being judged. Something that we do in anticipation of bias, and it's almost like stereotype threat, You know, it's that knowledge that a stereotype will be had about you. And you have a lot of choices when you walk into a situation like that. And for some people, this is an every day, every hour occurrence. Like, how are people going to deal with me? Like what they see about me, which by the way, is perceived diversity. Again, lots of layers. Mm. We aren't everything we look and there's so much invisible that's going on. And so it's kind of the reason why as an LGBTQ plus person that I try to come out constantly and not take advantage of what my friend Carmelin calls the passing privilege because I can walk through the world and not be necessarily identified as a member of the community that I am a part of. And I think about that a lot because it comes with awesome responsibility. But as a stage performer, definitely, well, I was closeted. Pretty much. I mean, and I was terrified that I wouldn't get cast in roles as the young love interest, bride, whatever, you know, you know, music theater, if people knew who I really was. And also as a business owner, it was, I was afraid that my ability to thrive would be, would be hurt if I disclosed. Anyway, we do cover a lot of aspects of who we are, uh, mental health issues, um, family and needs for flexibility, um, Our what's happening in our families because of ra- systemic racism and oppression, socioeconomic difficulties that we have. We hide and sort of downplay our maybe our femininity, maybe our masculinity. So for LGBTQ people, we... We are masters of disguise. (laughs) Uh, And we, boy, are we, we are, the numbers for LGBTQ people in the paper I just mentioned are like the highest of many groups because you're right, 50% of us are closeted in the workplace and that can take the form of straight out in the closet or the covering, which is some people know about me, some people don't know about me, right? And then having to come out every single day if you're in a client facing role or you're traveling a lot or, you know, it's the gay community says like, we have to come out constantly, you know, And, and sometimes those times don't, don't feel safe for us. And so there's a tremendous risk to authenticity for some of us. And the act of covering is exhausting because we obviously to me it feels like I'm running like two hard drives. Like I'm the maybe the expert or the author or I'm the speaker and then I'm also like am I safe? Can I share? Should I what will it do to my message and my credibility if I also talk about that? You know, I'm already a woman and I'm literally most of the time in groups full of men trying to work with senior teams and boards. And so we do this math in our head and we say like how much of me can people handle and what's going to be triggered by that? And then am am I really up for that today? Like, there's also the question of like, like, how do you feel today? Like, how strong, how brave, how courageous, you know, what sort of backstop do you have? You know, how mentally fit and emotionally strong are you feeling today? And I just think that like, imagine our coworkers and our colleagues walking around carrying this and doing this constantly, like kind of going through this equation. Uh, Dr. Vivian Ming, some of you may know who's a data scientist. Um, I know we're both friends with her, Melinda. Dr. Ming calls it the tax we pay on being different. And Dr. Ming has actually quantified some of that with um, her cool data scientist ways. Um, but I mean, it would be really neat to understand like how our productivity leaks out You know, in the covering behavior and experience, we are not as sharp, we're not as focused, we're maybe not on our game, Um, we're tired, we're physically sort of our body tells us we're tired, or we're anxious and we're sweating. (laughs) Um, So you'll have like physical reactions to it. And the most pernicious, though, I think is that it makes us Mm. feel small. And I think those subconscious messages to your psyche, to your soul, to your belief in yourself, like add up over time. I call it death by a thousand cuts. And when you're in organizations that don't value you, or you perceive that don't value you, if you do bring your full self to work, like it wears at you. And at some point, it breaks. And the break is, you know, I'm going to leave and go to another company that may do this better, where I feel like I can thrive. And so when I speak to company leaders, I say, this is what's happening across like a vast swath of your organization, particularly for any kind of diverse talent. And you, I know, care about bringing them in and keeping them. In this organization, and yet it doesn't feel like a place of belonging for them. So, what do you want to do about that? And that's when we—that's when we really can roll up our sleeves and, and do some pretty cool work.
0: Yeah, it, just uh, one kind of reaction to one of the things you said is that that constantly coming out, and I think that that is a part of allyship too, right? That's why we put our pronouns in our social media, we put our pronouns in our Zoom, for example, is because we, as allies, also need to need to do that and make, create a safe space for everyone to do that.
1: Melinda, I was going to add that that allies are needed to lift the covering behaviors before we leave covering. Like to me, we can't expect those of us who are struggling to bring our full selves to work the most to do all the all the changing, right? And all the coming to the table and all the the risk taking. Of authenticity because it's risky when you don't see any role models, you don't see a lot of people that look like you. What I'm talking about, about sort of being bringing your full self, is risky for some of us. So, allies have to literally, I think, through their actions and language and storytelling and safe space holding and creating, is they, you know, we've got to be met halfway so that the, the, the labor is not only on one side, but literally that there's allies that are actually lifting those covering behaviors and lowering that waterline in the organization and saying, you know what, mental health is an issue for lots of people here. We just aren't comfortable talking about it. What would it look like to make that more a part of everyday discussions and strategies and funding and support and visibility? You know, that's, so that's the question allies should be asking, which is like, why is our system biased in this way? Why are things okay and other things not? And then raising attention and using any kind of privilege we have, which I would argue allies, straight allies are privileged compared to LGBTQ people because the world is heteronormative in so many ways and and cisnormative, And so... That's an example of like just one incredibly important way that I have been supported by allies to basically make a space. And then if the space is made, then I need to be able to choose, do I want to walk through that door? Do I want to come out? Do I want to, like, am I comfortable? Do I feel psychological safety to do that? But I could never do and be all of who I am, I think, without the allies kind of seeding the ground for that.
0: And what are some of the things that that allies can do and that companies can do to create that safer space, That to create that that space, leave that space open for people to come out if
1: they want to. If they want to, right. Because I think you've got to kind of do it consistently over time. I think some allies fall into the trap of, well, I didn't get the response (laughs) I wanted. You know, I tried. (laughs) And it's just not, Mm -hmm. it's not a one and done. It it is, I mean, building trust isn't a one and done, right? How is somebody going to trust you with their most vulnerable truth? Just because you asked once. And it's also like how you ask. It's how you, and not just question asking, but also sharing and being vulnerable yourself about things that have been challenging or are being challenging in your life. You know, I think that when we vulnerably share, and right now during the pandemic, it's it's a great time to practice this muscle, um, which is what is proving really difficult for you right now? You know, where are you? Where is your heart not well? Uh, where are you struggling? It's not the onus isn't just on certain people to share how difficult this is, but on all of us. And I I find that actually some leaders are, I, I would say the least practiced in this. Some of us who are used to sharing our story are sort of out there, right? Always doing it, hoping that people, more people will come. But the ally reality is there's a lot of folks kind of hesitating and holding back. And so I do think people watch other people's behaviors and they mimic it. And particularly if those people are, if it's a white, straight and male and cisgender dominated organization, at least at the top of the house, the behaviors and the actions and the storytelling that that group engages in can shift entire cultures, like very quickly, because people look upwards, they, they look at a leader and they say, well, it's okay for that person to be talking about it, then I guess it's okay for me to, to talk about that or to lead that way or to incorporate that into my you know, my leadership palette, if you will. And right now, it's it's a really special time to be doing that, um, obviously, right? It's And it's really uncomfortable for a lot of people. So it's a good time to investigate how little you know about your colleagues, actually. We're beaming into each other's houses. We're seeing each other's same-sex partners and kids. Maybe we can't hide that anymore. <laughs> like, it is really on display in a way, whether we like it or not, there's kind of this forced transparency right now that I am very uncomfortable for some who carefully curated their lives, their work lives, because of the all the fears we've been talking about. But I'm also really hopeful that somehow this is almost like ripping off a band-aid with each other and like establishing, like quickly dropping in into that kind of trust because covering looks so different in a virtual world you know, and I've had, I've had lots of people say, you know, I'm actually, I'm a woman of color and like I cover, I find that I'm putting less energy towards all of this than I did in the physical workplace. Um, There are statistics that show that women in open office plans, female employees like feel very scrutinized in open office plans, for example, about their appearance. Like it's one of the many pieces of data that I have found really interesting in terms of what's Mm -hmm. not working about the open office. Um, And I don't even know if we'll ever return to those again. So maybe we, we don't need to talk about that for a while. And then I've had like, a friend who's non-binary say, it's been incredible to just be on Zoom and not feel like I'm misgendered constantly. And so our physical appearance triggers assumptions in others, right? And to remove that, remove sort of all of us, (laughs) it opens up the door, I think, for some some sidestep of some of the diversity dimensions that really like prove difficult for a lot of us. So not a perfect fix, but just a really interesting thing to think about. I do think there's there's a possible quantum leap here possible for being just seen and heard for our work and being sort of more purely interacted with at this distance, which is really ironic because you would think that that would have been more possible in a physical world. But Melinda, I think I've lost track of your original question. <laughs>
0: What are a few practical things that people can do in the workplace to really create that safe space to to ensure whether it's through working on the culture or it's working on policy,
1: on internal workplace policies? Yeah. Well, I do think too. I mean, somebody just brought up that there can be privilege and allyship within diverse groups, right? So I want to dive into okay. that for a minute. It's so important. There's privilege just doesn't end because you're in a diverse <laughs> group, you know, you're in an affinity group and you do, you do inclusive leadership perfectly. It doesn't mean just because that's your lived experience, it doesn't mean that you have the skills and the mindsets and the consistent behavior of an inclusive leader. So we all have work to do in the LGBTQ community. There are still white cisgender men in the community and those identities carry privilege with them. And so I think the onus, we've got to walk the talk in our own communities, right? At the same time as we expect this behavior in everybody else in the organization. I do think we've got to get real about that within our communities. I know for me, what I do with that is that I've been out for 25 years now, you know, and so I'm pretty out in who I am, but there's so much learning I have to still do. I consider as an ally, as a cis gay woman, there is a ton of learning I need to do about sexism, homophobia, transphobia, racism in the LGBTQ plus community and how I can use my voice as an ally to ameliorate all of that as an insider. And so allyship is not just like one demographic on high, like sort of imparting something. It has to start amongst us. And we've got to be really careful about how we silo Our identities, right? We and ERGs are great and important, but it's also encouraged that like vertical thinking instead of the cross identity allyship that we really need amongst us, right? And so I really encourage all of us to like do this thinking. Everybody has some kind of privilege that you are probably underutilizing. That's one piece. I honestly think that there's a lot of potential if we are just like removing that physical. Appearance piece, and we're just we're sort of shoulders up. (laughs) You know, imagine the implications for trans folks and gender non-binary folks around you know being able to kind of choose how you show up or not be on video at all if that's not what you need to do and want to do, and being a voice on the phone is, I think, a fantasy for a lot of people who walk around in bodies that trigger. So you know, just imagine that. And I think if you're somebody who this is not resonating with. I'm telling you, it's true for a lot of other people. And so part of the work of allyship is literally when, when I'm the only one in the room and I can reflect these realities, like that's my job. I hope I'm not the only one in the room can, that can speak to this and because it's not my lived experience, but allyship means, you know, using that voice and ensuring others are brought to that table. But if you're the only one at that table, like it is incumbent on you to make sure that that is raised and represented and then that it changes you know, going forward. So anyway, it's just been an incredible learning experience. I mean, for me, it's interesting also that I now am applying my aspiring allyship to the community of people with disabilities. And Melinda, I've learned so much from you about how you've managed your calls and subtitles and interpreters and and how you narrate mm-hmm. all the content on your slides <laughs> like so i have to compliment you and i've i've learned so much and so much of the the business world is not doing any of these things and so as a practice i'm trying to i'm trying to do things for my calls and also illustrate what i'm doing and why i'm doing them so that it's always a teaching moment and i think that that means that somebody else doesn't have to come forward and point things out right. because i am pointing right. them out and that means less emotional labor for somebody that's probably really struggling to bring their full selves and struggling perhaps with bias and covering. Like if I can shoulder Mm -hmm. some of that, like give it to me. And so you asked like, what can we do in organizations? We, you know, allies have to be more overt. I mean, we've got to have more people talking like this, more people um raising issues, more people sharing vulnerably about who they are, even if they look like a person of privilege, because we've got to we kind of kind of explode that like I never know who's in a room, even though I think I do, I don't, and I've been shown the truth and been surprised so many times and so humbled that I wasn't being an inclusive leader no. either you know and, and that's been really humbling to me and really beautiful actually, that people trust you with this stuff, but you know we we've got to encourage executives and people who don't think diversity is somebody else's job got to build that muscle in those leaders to be able to be fluent in this and do it in an authentic and personal way not just from the head mm-hmm. and the
0: also earth. to be okay with some missteps and to help them as they misstep because inevitably as allies we do and 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 I do oh feel gosh, that yes. you know being careful about shaming and by provoking guilt and feelings of shame and guilt are, are not the answer. I think that we have to also create that safe space for for leadership to be able to learn and grow and um, and support them and push them in
1: in that that learning and growth. It's so true, Melinda. I know we're very aligned on that. Like the shaming stuff is. I mean, who learns from a place of shame? I mean, it can be. I think a, a temporary state. And it it probably, it needs to be felt because we should be ashamed of what we have participated in and what we haven't challenged, right? But I can't necessarily work forward with somebody that's stuck in that place. And the problem with shame is that I give up. I feel overwhelmed. I feel discouraged. And we have to believe allyship and a future different behaviors are possible for ourselves, like in order to undertake that journey. It's just human psychology. So, I do think as hard as it might be and as frustrated as a lot of us are with the mm-hmm. pace of change, it's like, why are mm. we still having this conversation? And, and why do why are allies asking for checklists, right? Like, why do I have to explain again, you know, how to do this and how to do that? Uh, we've got, I just think we've got to be careful with that because so much of us, we're in this work. We listen to it all day. Some of us, it's our lived experience. So we know this deeply, but there's so many people that don't. And so um, we've got to, we say in consulting, like meet the client where they're at, Mm -hmm. meet the learner where they're at, like really, and remember that you were, you were on a learning journey. Hopefully we, we all are. There's no way
0: and that we can, can all adaption. be like perfect right. allies for each other in this space. Even if we are from a marginalized <laughs> group or multiple <laughs> marginalized identities, there's still a lot of room for growth and understanding right. of other marginalized identities. And, it, totally. and then one thing that just totally kind of occurred totally. to me as we're talking is that part of allyship is recognizing those feelings of guilt and those feelings of shame and moving past that because I, I know the first time that I heard the word privilege, for example, I was like, I did not like it. I did not like it and <laughs> um, you know, now I recognize it and know that I have this this privilege but it I made mean, you know there was some shame and some guilt in that and some was probably misplaced and and some of it was real and, and I think part of allyship is really mm-hmm. that, that part of growth as well is recognizing that and moving past that.
1: I agree. Yeah, and even if it there's no timetable, there's no you know mm-hmm. timeline. I only ask leaders to just make sure you're moving forward, um, even if it's small steps, and even if you perhaps achieve a milestone and you stay there for a while, because things also with this work have to be embodied. They can't just be an intellectual exercise, or it can't be mm-hmm. performative allyship, right? Like we talk about, but it's got to be. I think it's got to be deeply felt. And that takes a while. That is not something you can snap your fingers and say you're an ally tomorrow. You can start by putting rainbow flags places or sharing your pronouns or, you know, talking about pride more openly and how you're an ally, you know, but I, we always say in the community, pride isn't just once a year, it's 365 (laughs) days a year. I'm proud, you know? And um, so organizations also have to resist the temptation to kind of pull out all the stops around one cultural, you know, celebration, but not really be there on a day-to-day basis and it's really to me where the rubber hits the road isn't necessarily pride but it's how i mean how many people are still closeted in the workplace to me that's the metric that keeps me up at night it's like why what is it about our system that is making people feel e- even though these companies are award winning companies even though they're on diversity inc's top 50 companies they have tons of closeted employees like it's just this conundrum it's same with people with disabilities you know when we are asked to check a box about who we really are and we get that employee engagement survey we're the ones that don't trust our institution enough to check the box and then you have senior leaders coming to us and saying Well, we don't have that many (laughs) folks or we, we can't count how many people and therefore like, how do we know that this is a pressing issue for us from an employee engagement standpoint? So, but I'm not telling everybody you have to be out at all. I'm just pointing out like how my consultant brain works, which is that, that we, if the struggle is real and I don't want anyone to feel that they're going to have to come out into an unsafe space, like I wouldn't do that. And maybe that's why I became a consultant, Melinda, because I was like, I just like this is a waste of my time, and I want to just be, you know, be all of who I am because that's mm-hmm. where I can do my best work, right? Period. And that's true for all of us. But I know there is a question about like, do we have to be out as a out as somebody to be a leader and a voice in DNI? Do we have to declare our labels to contextualize this work? It's a fascinating mm-hmm. question. I mean, I've had you know people on panels with me that. We're allegedly an ally on the panel, and then we get off the panel, and he takes me aside, and he says, "Actually, I I just recently came out. I'm a 55 year old married man. You know, I have a heterosexual relationship with my wife, but I'm starting the process of coming out. So that person was an ally on my panel, mm. and just wasn't ready to mm. be out. So again, there's like no." no timeline. I think when you disclose is up to you. I think it, but just remember that part of our work is aligning ourselves and bringing our full selves to work so that we have the credibility and really, frankly, the power of that as we are change agents, right? I mean, it's it's like fuel, it's rocket fuel. <laughs> uh, so while we don't have to be out, I think that the effectiveness of having a personal connection to this work and that, lived experience and that passion and that context makes you extra powerful and effective when you join it with all the other organizational change skills that you need as a, a leader in the dei space yeah, so as I said we can talk for hours um,
0: <laughs> um, and we just kind of grazed over a few few things that I just want to call out and not, I don't know that we have a lot of time to address it. we addressed a little bit as we were talking one is intersectionality, which we kind of said in lots of different ways, yes. but didn't say that word. And I think that is really important that in all of, of this work around diversity and inclusion is recognizing that some people have many marginalized identities uh, in the LGBTQIA plus community is no exception. And you can be mul- multiple letters within that, right? And, and then yes. particularly trans women of color, trans women of color with disabilities are a subset of that community that are really important to me sure that we hold space for to support and because so many unique things happen with them and barriers that are placed in front of them. And, and someone in the chat also mentioned class, which is another another aspect of this age Etc. So I just wanted to call that and make sure that we mm-hmm. we say that out loud um, here because it is so important. And then and then I also want to make sure that we address ERGs and ERGs. Sorry, let me let me just say for those who don't know, ERGs, employee resource groups, affinity groups. Um, sometimes companies will call them have specific names based on their company name. So uh, ERGs. You've done a lot of work around helping companies to set them up, to lay the foundations, and then to make them as successful as they can be within the workplace, as supportive as they can be in the workplace. Can you talk a little bit about some of the best practices around LGBTQIA, ERGs in particular?
1: Yeah, one of my favorite topics. I mean, ERGs are, are how I cut my teeth as a consultant, a baby D&I consultant like 13, 14 years ago. It was how my first dollar that I made from this kind of work was a, a generous LGBTQ, we didn't say Q at the time, LGBT uh, group or pride group that brought me in as a baby consultant and, and entrusted me with their offsite for strategic planning or something. It was I have such fond memories of really actually shaping my understanding of the business case by going to conferences like Out and Equal and hearing... How this community, along with the corporate equality index, which is super helpful from HRC because it gives you basically a roadmap for inclusive LGBTQ organizations. So, the corporate equality index is really an important thing to know about. It's a benchmark for for workplaces and it's very detailed. And companies fight to get 100%. Every two years, they up the ante, and every two years, like all the companies you know, follow suit and make sure that they're providing everything in that list because that's kind of the gold standard for a lot of us. Um, Not perfect at all. Um, So I know (laughs) I'm like, don't at me, but um, (laughs) it's, it's, it's something. And I think it's something actually that a lot of communities don't have that orients You know, what does this look like and defines it so that it gives companies uh, something to shoot for, which is really important. But ERGs for LGBTQIA, um, they need to be intersectional. So I want to come back to your point about intersectionality, which is coined by Kimberly Crenshaw, woman of color, professor, amazing. And it was the overlapping stigmatized identities in sometimes multiple cases. But ERGs are full of intersectionality, or rather, need to be, Mm -hmm. Uh, not always. So sometimes I encounter a women's network that has no women of color and no queer identified women. And I'll say, hmm, you know, where's the diversity here? What sort of signals are being sent around the welcoming nature of this group, the leadership of that group, the goals and strategies the group is taking on, et cetera. So I still will, or I will find an LGBTQ group that has all perhaps cis men in the leadership positions. And in fact, that's a very, very common thing actually. And so we've got to watch that. And I think we've got to orient the groups. Now there's so many groups. I mean, in some of the companies I work with, there are like 100 network groups and maybe 12 primary groups. And then there's a lot of other kind of interest groups, I'd say. But there's an opportunity for intersectionality to be fostered in the membership of the groups, in the programming and the education the groups provide. And I agree, Melinda, if we pay attention to those who are dealing with the most intersectionality dynamics, our Mm -hmm. strategies will benefit Mm -hmm. all of us. So let's focus on the most marginalized. And it's a word I have a tricky relationship with marginalized. I like underestimated and perhaps, you know, you can fill in a lot, but literally if we focus on that group, all of us will benefit in terms of the conversation that, that we can have. So, uh, you know, I, I task ERGs when I'm working on their strategies with them to, to look through everything with an intersectional lens um, who's Who are they attracting and not attracting right now? Why? What would be appealing and helpful in terms of what ERGs exist to do, which is really build community, educate their organization, advise the company on sales, products, marketing, all the stuff in the marketplace, make sure that talent demographic is moving up the pipeline with as few challenges or headwinds as possible, which it, we will re- agree is still requiring a lot of work. But I think that we, we can't afford anymore to just get some people through. We have to get all of us through. So that's the intersectional lens in my mind. And I think now is the time to have a really deep and honest conversation about equity. With this pandemic, we've been shown so many disparate impacts. And I think finally, I think some folks are connecting the dots to say, you know, diversity as it was practiced wasn't inclusive, You know, could we build something better? And with the next generation coming in, who is super intersectional, they are expecting, I think you know, some of these structures that have been in place for a while to be intersectional. And I, I think if you don't know what that word means, <laughs> you're you're behind the eight ball quite a bit. So I'm really excited. I think, I wonder if ERGs, I'm asked a lot, will they disappear? As this next generation comes in that doesn't have such a need for safe space, who's perhaps out in the interview, who's incred- incredibly proud of being gender non-binary and is like, why would I not share that in an interview? Like what? Or getting into an interview and saying, what do you mean you don't have an LGBTQIA network or that you don't have like particular leadership development programs for this community and other communities. These are the tough questions that I'm, I really am counting on this next generation to push on because companies are behind the eight ball in so many ways. And, you know, not at all ready for a super diverse and inclusive and like self appreciating, I hope generation that's coming in and saying, this is all of me. Like, here's everything I come with that I expect to bring my full self to work and not cover. And, you know, I want to work for a company whose values Mm -hmm. align with mine. What a great call to action that, like, our generation, I think, has moved the ball considerably. But there is probably nothing like a tsunami of a generation with totally different viewpoints and values about all this, like, cutting in and ascending into leadership. And it's really going to change the culture, I think, probably faster than we've been able to. (laughs)
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. If anybody wants to look deeper into how the LGBTQ community is being disproportionately affected by COVID-19, the Human Rights Campaign, again, they're a great resource and they did a study on that. So there's lots of information that report will include that in our follow-up resources available on our event follow-up email, as well as our YouTube channel and our SoundCloud channel as well. So Jennifer, how do we transform LGBTQ plus pride spaces that are historically dominated by cis white gay men and bring better diversity into those spaces?
1: Well, I mean, I have a lot of thoughts. Uh, <laughs> this really needs to change. Um, there is a lot of exclusionary dynamics in the LGBTQ community. It's, I always refer to it as our dirty laundry <laughs> As a community, um, you know, it's hard to talk about. Like, you don't want to give people any ammunition to tear you down when, you know, you already feel so much stigma about who you are. But the truth is that, look, we are all a microcosm of the world that we exist in. And so, to me, it doesn't surprise me that when we go and we build systems, we build them and they unfortunately carry a lot of uh, the bias world, you know, our day to day lives and the organizations we live in. So, if we're not careful, you know, we end up propagating the same stuff. So I think that if I had the reins to make decisions, I would require network groups to demonstrate the diversity of leadership and membership. And I would give probably, I would give goals uh, to the and expectations actually for the network groups to reflect more accurately, you know, the workplace that we and the workforce that we exist in you know, and I would look at programming through that lens. I would look at the, whatever the, the celebrations through that lens. I would make it real because I, we have to kind of build understanding, but at the same time, there has to be accountability. So, you know, but accountability sometimes really solves things, right? (laughs) Like pay gap, like, If it's Mark Benioff like writing the check, right, for three million dollars to gross up everybody's pay, like, because I'm gonna fix this, but I'm also gonna ask the question, why did the gap happen in the first place and why has it been perpetuated and nobody's done anything about it? So we have to fix it right away, but we also need to ask the question like, why is this continuing to happen? And that's more of a belonging conversation around why would people come and then unjoin? Or why would people step up into leadership roles? You know, and and I know that this may be really kind of looking for representation. And I know sometimes we know representation isn't enough, but I do think representation is hugely important when you think about the voices and the faces that you see in terms of whether or not you want to be a part of something. You have to see it to be it. We have to see ourselves reflected in, in order to think we are going to be welcome there. You know, that is human behavior. So if I see an entirely male leadership team In a diversity network group, um, I'm probably going to be less likely to get involved as a cis woman or any woman-identified individual to say, like, I just don't know, is there a place for me there? And for allies, remember, it's interesting, too, because allies think there's no place for them because they look at leadership and say – well, I'm not welcome there, or I, I don't know how I would get involved. And this is why ally leaders are a really interesting concept. I know it's complicated because I know that these spaces should be for certain communities of identity, um, but at the same time, the visibility of allies within that construct is so important. You know, for me to know that, like, I can come into a space and I'm not invading a private conversation. That I'm that I'm welcome to be there. That I'm that there is a intentional want. To have me there and people that look like me there, you know that's a dynamic that's playing itself out too, which is fascinating. So, uh, so I think that I would probably ally strategy. There, there must be not just intersectional programming, diversity and membership and leadership, but I would also say a robust ally strategy where it's not just oh all are welcome, you can come if you want. Like to me, that is dishwater. It's not strong enough. Mm -hmm. You know, Literally, I like if I'm the program leader, I'm going to sit all of the leaders down and I'm going to say, okay, how many allies came to your events? And if they didn't, why? And what are you doing besides slapping an A on the end of your program invite, you know, to encourage this or even require this, um, the inclusion of allies. Mm -hmm. Um, But again, Melinda, you know, it's complicated because um, I would never want to take away a safe space for communities that. Need the safe space so much, and it's this ongoing debate, as everybody probably knows on this call of do we exclude to include right yeah. you know it's a fundamental question, and my clients love asking me. they think they've got me like I love it's like a gotcha moment So <laughs> What's Jennifer
0: well, are these groups divisive right and and my answer is always it's not either or yes, both, like I think that both <laughs> right. need to be possible and need to be allies do need to have a place to learn and to, to know that they can be allies and are welcome and invited right. to be allies. And then also, I do think that there is a, an important space we need to create for people to be who they are and without having to yeah. have that extra burden of educating allies. <laughs> Right. Totally.
1: <laughs> and that is- totally. I, I want to share a story. I uh, I work with a big bank, and this is a lovely institution, and they are so on their DNI journey. And we do a three day LGBT high potential leadership program with them, where it's just LGBT people in the room, and there are tears. There are the learning is deep and fast <laughs> because people aren't covering in that room, and they say I've never been. I've never had the experience of being in a room of just LGBTQ people talking about leadership, talking about my vision as a leader, storytelling, just working on myself. And that the bank is supporting this and funding it because I'm important. I'm important enough for this. and they. Bought, this bank also has a Black leader program, Asian leader pro- program, Hispanic leader program, and a people with diverse abilities program, and also a veterans leadership program. So we lead We lead the LGBT vets and people with diverse abilities programs. And it is is humbling to be in those rooms. And you realize how much work we're doing. It's the duck with the feet furiously paddling under the water, but everything kind of looking seamless above. Like when you get in that room, you can actually talk about the furious paddling. You can talk about, you didn't even realize the angst that you had, right? You didn't realize the fatigue. You didn't realize the isolation. And it's profound. Um, and they're very insistent that allies are not really in that room and that room is not for them. So that's an example of where the work needs to be closed door, I think. But you're right, it's a both band. Like we just, we have to incorporate both, but it doesn't mean it's open season on everything for allies either. It doesn't mean... You can come in anywhere you choose. This shouldn't be a sort of careless thing. It needs to be a really thoughtful thing and respectful.
0: Yeah, agreed. Okay, we are running out of time. So I think the the, the last question and obviously brief
1: is where people can learn more about you and your work. Yes, so please visit us at Jennifer Brown Speaks and that you can download a first chapter of the second book, which is called How to Be an Inclusive Leader. You can also take a free assessment, the Inclusive Leader Assessment, and it's 10 minutes and it'll give you a little report with some resources about where you are in the Inclusive Leader Continuum, which is the basis of the second book. Um, Melinda, I'm big on social. You and I dance all the time on Twitter. Mm -hmm. So I'm at at Jennifer Brown Speaks on Instagram. I have a podcast called The Will to Change. So I did want to make a plug for that. And then we do, we have a wonderful thought leadership paper on inclusion in the future of work that's come out of a lot of the community calls we've been doing that's made me so much like filled my head with a lot of ideas about what's possible so um that would be great to share perhaps you know after the fact and i'll get you the link um, melinda but you can you can send us a email at info at jennifer brown consulting if you'd like to get a copy of that report and we'll make sure that you get one thank you Thank you very much.
0: Thank you for all you do. And everybody, keep this going. Keep the learning and the conversations going and be brave. Use some new language. Take a new action. And thank you all for joining us. Join us each week for Leading with Empathy and Allyship. You can sign up to attend live with audience Q&A like this or catch the podcast or the video. And you can stay in the loop by going to changecatalyst.co, changecatalyst.co, and signing up for our newsletter. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and YouTube channel and we will see you next time. Thanks everybody. Have a good week.